You're listening to Starting Up on the Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. With VirtuZone, business set up with no regrets. Hello and welcome to the podcast for Starting Up with VirtuZone, Tuesday, May the 10th. With me, Richard Dean, joined in the studio by my co-host, Neil Petch, founder and chairman of VirtuZone. Now, one of the big issues we were talking about was micromanagement versus macro management small picture or bigger picture or as elon musk says nano management he goes really really deep into the details we heard not only from neil on this but also ibrahim mugabel who's the director of the great place to work institute in this region we were talking about online brand reputation we had the expert debsina chakraboti join us in the studio she's the vice president of business development at m filter it and finally the secrets of success today it was mustafa coiter the founder and ceo of coiter foods best known for their coiter milk you're listening to starting up on the agenda on dubai i 103.8 with virtue zone business set up with no regrets starting up with virtue zone is back neil petch is the founder and chairman of virtue zone delighted to have you in the studio with us neil top of the morning to you richard so it's been a while what's been keeping you busy i just got back from l.a shooting the movie of your life? No, you know what? We used to go over to LA to get business ideas, but uh, Dubai's so busy at the moment, I think it's much easier to stay here <laughs> and just have people come in our office. It's crazy at the moment, the amount of people setting up businesses. And what were you doing in LA? Work or pleasure? It was one of those ones that I'm going to put down as, as work, but did come with a certain amount of pleasure. <laughs> and we might be interviewing one of the people that uh, I, I was with over the next uh, few weeks. An amazing property uh, thing that's going to be coming over here shortly. You'll hear about it first, Richard. I look forward to that one very much indeed. Well, let's dive straight into our topic this morning. Are you a micromanager? Or a macro manager? Do you look at the small picture or just the bigger picture? Elon Musk kicked this one off. He described himself not as a micromanager, but as a nano manager. Let's hear from him now. This is him describing the time a couple of years ago when the Tesla Model 3 production was just ramping up and the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. I I lived in the Fremont and and Nevada factories uh, for for three years, fixing that production line, running around like a maniac living with the team. I slept on the floor so that, the, so that the, the team who was going through a hard time could see me on the floor, that, that they knew that I was not in some ivory tower. What do you make of that? Listen, in my opinion, it's a really fine balance. Is it, you know, are you passionate and are you encouraging your team to push the envelope or are you making them feel they've got to walk around on eggshells? And the key to it, Richard, in my opinion, is, is trust. If you've got your, your colleagues' trust, then you can push it a little bit more. You can do a little bit of nano-management without them feeling that, you know, you're just preaching because theory is an awful lot harder than practice. Well, David has written in and, and, and agrees with you, and he makes the example of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And when asked about their relationship, Bill Gates right, uh, replied, the man can't code, the man can't program. And Jobs replied, yes, but I've hired the very best people to do that, and I trust them. And David concludes, macro management wins over micromanagement, but 
only if you have the right team's respect and reward them. Yeah, I think if your team know where your company's driving, and that's such an easy statement to make, but in so many cases, if you were to poll the people in, in your company, do they know exactly where you're trying to get to? Do you have any short-term objectives? Do you have long-term objectives? So, you know, one of the things I, I did at the end of last year, we were close to our target. We weren't quite there. We needed to make that little extra bit of a push. And so I was out on the floor. I was coffee boy for a day. I was an accounts receivable. Apologies to all my staff for the terrible coffee on that occasion. But, you know, it really helped me learn a little bit both about what their jobs were. And also, actually, I was meeting customers as well and hearing it from a different perspective because sometimes in our gilded tower, we don't hear things as real as they are. So once I'd done that, I was then perhaps a little bit more able to to be a bit more demanding and get you know, inspire people. And Richard, you and I both love the same football team, which isn't doing too well at the moment. The difference between outrageous success and total failure very often is is tiny. So, you know, how do you succeed in a diet? How do you become a better paddle tennis player? You push yourself. And I think the role of a boss is to try and inspire. And if we try and be too collaborative, then, you know, I, I don't think we can inspire and drive as much as possible. It's funny you mentioned football. I was back in Manchester this weekend uh, watching the other team, Manchester City, uh. their, their 5-0 victory. We had a, a, a walk around the pitch beforehand and Pep Guardiola, the manager of Manchester City, it would seem as a nano-manager because they were explaining that for a Premier League football pitch, you can be, be between 20 millimetres of grass or 30 millimetres of grass. And Pep wants it to be as short as possible to make the ball go as fast as possible. So he's always pressing the groundsman, I want 20 millimetres. And they say, Pep, it's just not possible. OK, well, I have 21. And he said, no, we'll do 22, but below that, the pitch is going to disintegrate. <laughs> yeah, and there was an article about uh, our new manager, Man United's new manager, the same thing. that I think they judge a manager now by how short he wants the grass. So there you can become too obsessed with something. Thing. It's balance, isn't it? Well, it, it, it's balance, I guess, when you've got a business of maturity and scale like like you have. But I guess in the early days of Virtue Zone, you were you were doing everything, weren't you? Because you were a startup. I mean, you didn't start with a team of a hundred, did you? Yeah, I have the huge advantage over most people of having made many more mistakes than they have and, and occasionally learning from them. But yeah, you're right. You've got to have the strength of your conviction at, at the beginning. And, you know, there's what I would call classic old style management. Um, be careful of that. I think we also need to be aware that there are, there are changing times. So what worked really well 10 years ago might simply not be the case any anymore. Could Sir Alec Ferguson still exist in today's uh, modern football world? It's questionable. Let's get another perspective on this. Ibrahim Mugabel is Managing Director of the Great Place to Work Institute in this region. Joins us now live on Microsoft Teams. Morning, Ibrahim. Good morning and thank you for having me. You've been listening to the conversation. You say a little bit of nano management isn't always a bad thing. Yes. So from our perspective, we believe in employees' experience and we need to be elevating that employee's experience. And for us to be able to do that, it's not just about the top management and the CEO and the board. It's about the people. It's about the people manager. So they need to be working together with the top management to improve the employee experience because this is what will impact performance and trust. So from our perspective, we believe that if you're driven by your employee's experience, you will be able to get there. 
So if you are able to do it on your own, well done. If you cannot do it on your own and you need support, this is where you need to step in and give that support and give that push to the managers to be a great manager and to be the best manager and to be a high performing and high trust organization as well by default. In your experience, is there much of a difference between businesses that are run by the owner, owner managed businesses, as opposed to large corporations where the managers are simply professional managers? This is a great question. We always get asked this question because we work with all type of organization from an organization who have 50 people to organization who have 26,000 people. And there's always a question is, is it fair to be comparing these two type of organization? Again, going back to what I what I said in the first statement, it's all about employees experience. It doesn't matter if you have 10, 50 or 26,000 employees. If you have a company which is driven by your people, it doesn't matter where do you stand in terms of size. Definitely, when you're smaller, it's easier because you are able to interact and you're able to bring the puzzles together. With larger organizations, you have you have to be dependent of your managers. This is why we believe that managers play a key role in the trust and performance of any organization. If the managers don't enable that, even if you have best practices and you have global practices, it doesn't matter. It's all about the managers who are going to help you to get there. And this is why some companies come to, say, come to us and say, Ibrahim, I don't understand why do we have three departments? We have a marketing team who's doing really well. We have the finance team who's not doing well or, or, or. So how can you help us with that? And it's not just about blaming HR. It's not about blaming the CEO. Sometimes you need to understand where the gap is. Sometimes you do have best practices but you don't have the implementation of that practice. And this is why you need to go back to that manager and to make sure that he has the best practices and he's actually implementing them as well. Ibrahim, first thing I want to say is I love the title of your business, Great Place to to Work. So tell us a little bit about when someone walks in your office, what vibe do they see there? From our perspective, we try our best to focus on our people and on our people experience as well. We need to make sure that it's a great place to work for all without any exception. We need to assess and see if your organization is one. From what I heard, I think you are. So we would love to certify you as a great place to work. We believe that it should be a great place to work for all without any exception. And this is how we're driven globally. We are the global authority for workplace culture. And we are driven with the methodology of creating a better world by focusing on employees of on having a better experience. Yeah, Branson turned it around, didn't he? So he said the employee comes first, and I guess that's true. Ibrahim, great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. That's the voice of Ibrahim Wagabal, the managing director of the Great Place to Work Institute here in the region. You're listening to Starting Up on the Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. With VirtuZone, business set up with no regrets. Got Neil Petch with us in the studio, and we're talking reputations. One bad review can ruin a brand's reputation, which can take years to build up. And if you're a business owner, this is something it needs to be a priority and not an afterthought. Joining us now in the studio is the online brand reputation expert, Debsina Chakraborty, Vice President of Business Development at MFilterit. Debsina, it's good to have you with us. Thanks very much indeed for being in the studio. Stoked to be here. So, can you share some examples of brands getting it wrong when it comes to maintaining their online reputation? See, online reputation uh, in in today's world is more reactive. So, you are always on a damage control mode. And a lot of 
and a lot of uh, brands are not getting it right uh, for example when pepsi launched its ad with uh, kendall jenner what we saw is pepsi decided not to talk about it and then people were using all type of negative comments against pepsi for almost two weeks and that is something you need to avoid what, what was the nature of the advert Ken- uh, this was this was basically kendall jenner going and uh, as a protester going and giving them a pepsi can to all the policemen and it was kind of uh, taken really badly saying that you do not respect the protesters people who got arrested and it was a very uh, it was not a very bad ad, but it was timed really bad. And Pepsi did very little uh, to, uh, to, to just uh, apologize for the ad or even take down the ad. And those are the things we see today. It's probably an example of the left hand not knowing what the right hand are doing. So marketing had a brilliant idea, but they didn't communicate it to the rest of the company. Absolutely. Uh, yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, you know the Wardell game? The yeah. one with words. They had a word fetus. It is not a bad word. But because there is an entire discussion going on about uh, the mm. law in US, it has Timing. become a huge problem. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. And you really need to know what you're doing. And if you look at it, everything online is reactive. It is not proactive. People are not thinking beforehand what's going on. And it, it needs to, what we see nowadays is it's like, going back to the PR route, wherein you need to know where your brand is, what your brand is representing, uh, and uh, how, uh, how well it is thought through. Neil, I mean, you get thousands of reviews over the years, yeah. and, and, and every year, and overwhelmingly they're good. I'm looking on Google, you've got uh, well above four and a half is your rating, but that does mean some of them aren't necessarily complimentary. How do you handle them? Do you know, I think I would say that we made a mistake to start with, or I had a mental mistake about this. My approach was I wanted everything to be perfect. You want to project to your potential customers perfection. And short term, that might be really good. But in the long term, I think you lose out because the most important thing we were talking about earlier with nano management is trust. So I think it's, you know, accept that you're human. If there is a mistake out there, uh, admit to it, engage the customer straight away. And the one that I liked from years ago was KLM said, if you've lost your luggage, you're at the carousel. You know, we've all been there, right? It's going around and where's my luggage? Tweets that I've lost my luggage. So they were encouraging customers to show that they had mistakes. But actually, the customers, I think, appreciated that. So I'd say that's one of the things. But you're you're the expert, so you tell us. So (laughs) empathy. Empathy is very important uh, when you are responding to a review, to a bad review. Uh, It's very important to understand the sentiment that the user has when they're posting that review and uh, acknowledging it. Uh, second, if you are wrong, accept it. Accept it and promise to do better. And that is what Starbucks did. Uh, when, when the racial problems hit Starbucks, what they did was shut down all their stores across the country for one full day for a training exercise. And that shows commitment to getting better, doing better, trying harder. Get it right first time. I mean, look, Richard, look at Beergate in uh, England at the moment, uh, you know, where, where if you hold up your hand straight from the start and say, hey, I made an honest mistake, 
But you know what? I'm trying to get things right. People are going to be a lot more appreciative. I think that the consumer now has a radar, and the younger people are, the better their radar is for being BSed on on air, right? So you need to project that you are are real, and if you can do that, then then people will give you a lot more forgiveness. Am I forgiven for having my phone just go off in the middle of a radio Always. show? Always. <laughs> Maya culpa. That's a reference to the the, <laughs> the the story in the UK at the moment where the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition were filmed in what might or may not have been parties during lockdown. Exactly. And one has been pontificating about the other and then has been caught for the same thing. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's like they just partied. They should have just said sorry and got over with it. Just say, I'm in a stressful job. You know, I made a mistake, but please, I need to run this country. And and I think that that would have been a much uh, better way. I think, you know, from, from our point of view, the honesty thing is important. It's why, Richard, we don't, most of our marketing, we're not selling on price. Because if you, if you tend to sell on price, you normally uh, are hiding something. You're normally keeping something back. You're trying to lure someone in rather than being open and honest and transparent and allowing people to make their decisions. What about malicious reviews? It's, it's fine for someone to say, I, I don't like Richard Dean on the business breakfast. I don't think he's very good. That's fine. That's just an opinion. But if it starts getting nasty and malicious about a person or an organization, what do you do then? There's nothing you can do. That's the biggest challenge with having online review and they don't go away. So the only way to deal with it is to put out more positive content and keep putting them out so that the reviews... Uh, they they go down the search results. They're not going away. Uh, you can try to talk to them, uh, try to ask them to get those reviews down. A lot of brands do that. They call people up, understand where the problem is coming from, and then ask them to take the reviews down. Uh, there are vendors on Amazon who offer free products to take a bad review down. So reviews are a huge, huge, uh, uh, very, very important and, and, uh, and also is a big problem for brands and vendors. I mean, listen, most of the listeners to this show are are probably entrepreneurs, startup people. Maybe they don't have a big team supporting them. First thing I'd encourage them to do is constantly monitor because you need to get to that. You need to be able to react fast. You need to engage with that customer. Um, But then that old thing that our grandfather used to tell us, rise above it. Um, the Queen of England's always been uh, pretty good at it. Yes, we need to adapt our ways. But, you know, if someone does get personal and you, of course, respond to it in that way, then you're going to lose the faith of everyone. If you show that you are being dignified about it and trying to engage, then I think that people will, perhaps not immediately, but in the mid and long term, appreciate that you're trying to do the right thing. What else can we do to boost our brand reputation online. We're talking mainly about bad reviews, and that's just one element of it. But what about the proactive way to boost your reputation online? So like PR, this has to be a a proactive approach. You have to know where you are, where are you being represented, uh, which kind of videos or uh, websites your ads are going up on. Uh, For example, uh, you see a lot of big brands uh, advertising on fake news websites, misinformation websites. And today the consumers are becoming more and more aware and they are asking questions. So you need to ask those questions before somebody else asks you, 
uh, on 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 a public forum that why are you b- b- putting up an ad when all this information is is misinformation and uh, those are the things that you have to be on the lookout for that's the kind of uh, tool that mfiltrate brings on board we call it a brand safety tool wherein we kind of look at whether your brand is being placed in safer environments uh, for example uh, we we have read reports that there are uh, so many misinformation sites being handled by uh, multiple foreign nations trying to disrupt a particular nation what do you do where how are they making money they need to make money from somewhere they're making money through ads and now if your ad go lands up on on let's say currently on a russian uh, propaganda site you do not want to be associated with it and you have to be well proactive to know that you don't want to be associated with it uh, rather than somebody coming and taking a screenshot and maligning you on a on a public forum so proactive is the word fascinating discussion really appreciate your time this morning talking reputation with the brand reputation expert deb sina chakraboti vice president of business development at m filter it you are listening to the agenda richard dean in for georgia tolly you're listening to starting up on the agenda on dubai i 103.8 with virtue zone business setup with no regrets. Ah, my guest this morning on Starting Up is Neil Pett, the founder and chairman of Virtues. And Neil, thanks for sticking around and being with us. Absolute pleasure. Learning every second, Richard. And we welcome into the studio our third guest this morning for our startup success story. It is The Milkman. Deliver my milk in the morning. <laughs> and the milkman is Mustafa Koita. Good to have you in the studio this morning, Mustafa. Uh, thanks. That was the coolest introduction ever, by the way. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to do the Benny Hill, milk, the fastest milkman in the West uh, <laughs> there were, song. There were so many options. Uh, it's, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, Mustafa Koita, you are the founder and CEO of not just Koita Milk, but Koita Foods. Before we delve into your success story, give us the 30-second elevator pitch. How do you describe Koita Foods? Great. So Koita is a company that helps families eat healthier. We focus on organic dairy, lactose-free dairy, and plant-based milks. Uh, We started just in Dubai as a homegrown company, and we're now in 11 countries around the world, including the United States. Okay. And you make most of your stuff not here in the UAE, but in Italy. Is that right? Everything is produced in the north of Italy. So let's talk about how you got there, because you you didn't come from the food industry, did you? No, I didn't. I came from quite the opposite. I was in the defense business before this. So tell us what you were doing before this. So I used as to... much as you can, because it's defense. <laughs> so you've got to be a bit secret squirrel. No, I won't be too secret squirrel. But I used to work for Boeing on the defense side. It was a wonderful job. Um, I was working with a lot of the leadership around the region. Um, and, you know, it was a, it, I made a lot of money. I met a lot of people. I learned about the region. But I think at some point in my life, sort of around my midlife crisis, that entrepreneurial bug came out and I wanted to get into something I was super passionate about, which was healthy eating. So what age were you when you quit your job and set up Koita? Or was there there a bit of overlap? Just before my midlife crisis. So I'd say around 38, 39 is when I got that bug. I've had three midlife crises. (laughs) I I recommend them thoroughly to everyone. (laughs) They're great, aren't they? (laughs) And how how was the conversation with your nearest and dearest? You've got this successful career that you spent 15 years building, earning good money, and you just chuck it all in. Yeah, you know, and just as Neil was saying, it was a great job. I met so many people. I was making a lot of money. It was cush, you know. 
But I think that um, I was getting a bit complacent at work. You know, I wasn't really, and I was also going against the grain, and I didn't like political correctness and corporate, you know, political correctness. And I was always an outside of the box kind of person. And I think when that happened, I just realized that for me to be happy, I needed to be in a different environment. It was a tough jump, actually, leaving a steady paycheck and going into the world of entrepreneurship. I've got to say, great entrepreneurs hail from Boeing because my co-founder spent 10 years at, at Boeing. Oh, really? So I think it really does, if you like to be outside of <laughs> the box. It makes you hate corporate America so much that you uh, go the other way. No, but my experience at Boeing was fantastic and uh, really paved the way for a good entrepreneurship story. So you've got to get funding for something like this. It's not just setting up a consultancy where you need a laptop and a phone. You needed, you needed funding. Where did that come from? Yeah, so my funding actually came from my own pocket. Um, we're 100% self-funded. We've never given up equity. We have zero debt on the books to date. My funding was my life savings. And so at Boeing, I was grateful that I made some money there. And with probably a few hundred thousand dollars, I poured that into the company, built up the branding, did a lot of travel to find you know the best farms in the world. And, uh, and basically, I bootstrapped the company to where we are today. Okay. And when, what year was that? That was 2014. 2014, April, yeah. so eight years ago. About eight years ago. And when did you break even or start making money? Around year two is when I broke even. And what I did is I reverse engineered my business plan around how much cash flow I had. And I think that was one of the secrets for us keeping it whole. Um, and, you know, I didn't grow too fast. You know, I, I grew slow and steady. I took baby steps. And I think that was advantageous to us because when you grow fast, sometimes growth isn't good unless you can manage it right. You know, so, so we're able to make less expensive mistakes as we scale the company. How did you manage to build what is now quite a strong brand? Neil was saying you know, this morning, you have a number of the plant-based milks in your fridge at home, don't you? Yeah, they sprung up on me because I, <laughs> I, I am a Philistine and a carnivore and all of that sort of thing. And I run away from, we converted from vegetables. You. And, yeah, but you, 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 you sort of snuck it uh, uh, by me. And before I knew it, it was in my coffee. Uh, uh, my, my kids love the stuff as well and love it in their lunch Thank boxes, you. which is great, but not easy because it's not a cheap product. You're, you're, as a parent, I know, you're yeah. not the cheapest product on the shelves you're right. by some distance. So how, do you over, how do you... So interestingly enough, as a parent you know, of three kids, we decided that we wanted to start a company that had the best organic milk, not the cheapest organic milk. So you know, the strategy ended up working because you, know, you always want the best for your kids. So we had the highest fat content. We went to Italy where we had the most premium milk. We had Italian oats, Italian almonds. The packaging was recycled. We didn't go for cheap plastic straws because it was bad for the environment but more expensive. So we ended up going premium and more value for the customer. And that ended up being a good business uh, strategy as well. We were chatting earlier on about micromanagers versus macro managers, or even Elon Musk being what he calls himself a nano manager. <laughs> where on the spectrum are you? Look, I think it depends on where the employee is with their life cycle in the organization. But usually, we're close to newer employees. And as they come into the organization, it's more of a hands-off approach. But I think the real philosophy is that and Neil, as an entrepreneur, maybe you relate to this, but I feel like I work for my employees, right? Because if they're not happy, if they're not making money, if they're not learning or moving up in the world, they're just not going to stick around. It's a very competitive marketplace right now. And we've got some extremely talented people in the company. And honestly, every day I ask myself, my KPI isn't just quantitative. It's how do I, how do I make sure they're happy? You know, how do I make sure they're happy? And that's a hard thing to do as an owner, but it's work because we've had a very good retention uh, within the company. 
So give us a sense of the scale of the business now. Um, you're a private company, so you don't have to give us your financial <laughs> results, much as I'd love it if you did. Yeah. But in terms of a, a staff size, yeah. market penetration. So in 2014, we were one employee. We're now 31 employees. In 2013, I had a 200-square-foot office, probably smaller than this uh, Dubai Eye you know, room right now. We now have about 2,000 square foot with a back office in the Philippines and people in three home offices. We were in one country, or really one city. We're now in 11 plus, plus the United States. In 2014, I used to have hair. Now I have no hair whatsoever. <laughs> nothing to do with the milk. But. No, no, nothing to do with the milk. I think it has to do that we never raised capital. You know, we bootstrapped this thing. And, you know, we had cash flow issues, just like everybody. And I think just managing the cash carefully being frugal, being smart, hustling, you know, and being passionate helped us kind of scale the company. So that gives you an idea of where we are. We we do in the UAE, which is about less than half my business, we do anywhere between 250 to half a million liters a month. Mustafa, a lot of people travel abroad, see an amazing food product and think, hey, I'm going to bring that back here. And they don't realize the complexities behind uh, uh, making that possible. Can you take us through a little bit about how you interacted with the government authorities in order to get permission to yeah. to do all of this sort of thing? So someone out there who wants to bring an amazing new product, they can actually make it happen. Yeah, uh, Neil, that's a great question. Look, we work very closely with Dubai Municipality Food Control. And I have to tell you a story. When we started the company, we came up, we started in the dairy space. So that's one of the ways we snuck into your fridge is we started with organic dairy, then lactose-free, and then the plant. And the buyer just you know evolved with us. But in working with Dubai Municipality, I remember when we were designing our labels and trying to make sure the product was meeting all the proper regulatory standards. We looked on the website, we pulled the documents, but we had a lot of questions and they had an open door policy. So if I was in the US right now and I asked for the FDA to give me a meeting to talk to them about importing milk, good luck, you know. Mm. But I literally went to Dubai in um, the Deira area had met the head of Dubai Food Control. She had an open-door policy. She sat with me, went through the labels, all the regulatory stuff, amazing. walked through everything. With it. it was amazing. I mean, it was very entrepreneurial. And I think Dubai Municipality Food Control has set an open-door policy and a very approachable standard that's made it easy for entrepreneurs to flourish in this kind of country. So I think a lot of people get intimidated by it being a lot more difficult than they realize. So it's always just ask, find out, try and reach out to someone that has done it uh, uh, before, and then go and make it happen. Yeah, We've got a question in from Ella talking about your packaging, which you mentioned earlier. She's asking, "Is are these... She described them as Tetra Pak style boxes. Yeah. Are they recyclable? Yes, they're all fully recyclable. Another thing I'm very proud to say is we're probably the first company in the region that had a no plastic straws policy. So all of our 200 ml kids are fully recyclable and we have no plastic straws, which are known to really pollute the ocean and whatnot. Um, it's not resealable, so sometimes you can waste milk. Ours are resealable. So my answer is absolutely. So what's next? For this organization? <laughs> there's a lot going on right now. I think we're, there's internal and external, right? The external is in terms of new products, we're investing heavily in new product development on the plant-based milks. So one thing I'm very proud to announce is that we're now uh, launching, and this is the first time we've told anybody, a new barista line of plant-based milks. So that includes, for example, an organic oat barista that has only three ingredients. It has some of the least ingredients for a plant-based oat barista in the region. It's made of Italian spring water. 
Italian organic oats, and organic sunflower oil. It's fantastic. Our almond, our coconut, everything is optimized for frothing. So we're going to hit all the baristas and the coffee shops and the home baristas with this type of uh, product range. So I'd say that's new. And really just an emphasis on plant-based and lactose-free tend to be like where we're growing. Mustafa, great talking to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for being our startup success story today. Thank you very much. Mustafa Koita is the founder and CEO of Koita Foods. You're listening to Starting Up on the Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. With VirtuZone, business set up with no regrets. We got uh, Neil Petch in the studio, founder and chairman of VirtuZone, just for a few more minutes. So do get your questions in. He's taking them now. We've had a number of them in before. Some of them came in on Facebook over the past couple of days. Neil, this is the first one. Your starter for 10. A question from <laughs> Nelly in Damak Hills. I currently have a full-time job, but I'm thinking of setting up an e-commerce business. What license should I get for this and how much would it cost? How much do I need to set aside to pay for the, for the license? I'll appreciate any help on this one. Thanks. E-commerce business, what kind of license? Well, if I heard correctly, and the lady's uh, question, her name is Nelly, and yeah. I'm now an agony uncle, and my name is Neil, that's quite, <laughs> that's quite a good uh, start. Listen, Nelly, I think this is a really good one, because so many of our people that reach out to us, they're starting their business, a couple of dirhams is massively important, so cash flow and so on, there's the temptation to reach out for the cheapest uh, option. And my goodness me, in your particular field, there are some cheap options at the moment. I mean, you know, a lot of Northern Emirates options under 6K. So beware, because that's not all you're going to spend. So do your own research. And so, for example, in in this case, you can get your e-commerce license. It's about 6K. But that does it come with a lease agreement? If you don't have a lease agreement, then you're not going to get a bank account. You're going to be waiting three months and expecting bukra, 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 and it's just, just not going to come. And as we all know, the reason you want a trade license is so that you can live and operate here and you need a bank account. The second thing I, I would say to you is how confident are you in your business? Because if your business is going to grow, Richard, your, your interior design business, you're just moving into this amazing location in Alcoz, right, in that cool area where the yoga places are and so on and so on you're able to do that because you have a specific license that enables you to be in in that area so someone that's launching an e-commerce business do they want to have an actual storefront somewhere do they want to have a pop-up because if you do then the license that you go for is going to be a slightly different one so plan plan for growth. And of course, I'm going to say this, Richard. So the key thing is ask questions, speak to experts, and don't get lured in because there's a lot of people here running businesses trying to make a quick buck quickly and then running away after the first year. Lamia from Bird Dubai has this question. My sister is 16 and wants to start her own jewelry brand. Is she too young to start a business? Can she sell it to her friends to begin with? Okay, so the good one uh, uh, there is from a legal perspective, you can. I would recommend that you have relatives as shareholders in, in the business. 
But the UAE is incredibly encouraging of, of allowing people to come in as interns, allowing people to, to practice what they're doing and get things going and that grey area of investigating. So, you know, the first thing when, when you're setting up a business is to research it, is to find out what are the pitfalls, is to reach out to your friends and so on. So, so to answer your question, I'm just thrilled when I hear that someone of that age wants to do something. Yes, you can. There's a legal way to do it. And there's also the area when, you know, look at it and investigate and find out if you like it. Because trust me, when your phone's beeping at three in the morning, you know, is that something that you want? I love it. Some Someone might not. So, so just do a little bit of research first. And very quickly, it's a jewellery business. We don't know if she's importing jewellery or manufacturing it herself. But if you're making the stuff here, costume jewellery, not, not, not precious metals. Is that, is that okay? Can you do that in, in your living room? Absolutely. And, and, and there are huge numbers of people that do it. And, and, you know, what I would suggest to a lot of people is dip your toe in the water. So what you can do is to distribute that jewellery. Instead of seeking to do it yourself immediately, use a distributor, whether that be a Harvey Nichols or, 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 or whether it be someone smaller than that that has the license to enable you to do it. So test it out, see how people react to it, and then add it yourself. So, you know, typical, we were talking about e-commerce earlier. So, you know, for e-commerce, you need, of course, the logistics. You, you need the payment gateway. I would be encouraging anyone anywhere in the world to be basing that business here. And in so many cases these days, people are shipping something from China, for example, to Africa. It's not actually touching Dubai, but the brand Dubai brings with it trust and brings with it value. So that's how you can sort of wrap everything up and make more money faster and enjoy doing it. Neil Petch, founder and chairman of Virtue Zone. It's great to have starting up back. And with you for the first time, I really feel that we've escalated things. Georgia, you're on, you know, the, the bar has been raised for next week. Georgia's back tomorrow. Worry not.